Well, if you would please join me by turning in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 1. This morning we are beginning a new study, walking our way through the book of 1 Samuel. It is the first of two historic biblical narratives. This is, of course, 1 Samuel, and then what follows is 2 Samuel. And at this point, I don't know whether or not we will go straight from 1 Samuel into 2 Samuel, or if we might jump back to the New Testament and sandwich a short New Testament book between them. I don't know yet. Uh, But for the next year, at least, we're planning, I'm planning on us camping out here in the book of 1 Samuel. But before we read the text, I want to give you some context as to where we find ourselves this morning. Uh, We're going back roughly 350 years prior to the ministry of Micah. So everything we've talked about this summer, everything we've seen, go back 350 years earlier in redemptive history. And that places us at the tail end of the period of the judges. I'm going to give you a brief history of God's people. There was the Exodus, God rescuing and bringing his people out of Egypt. Then came the period of wandering in the wilderness. Then Joshua leads the children of Israel into the promised land, and it is taken and the people settle there. But after the death of Joshua and his generation, we're told that another generation arose who did not know the Lord, or the work that he had done for Israel. So there's a new generation. You have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren who did not know the Lord and the work that he did for his people. And as you would expect, there is a downward spiral into spiritual and societal darkness. Now, quick side note, that line, which is found in Judges chapter 2, is a perilous reminder of just how important it is for Christian parents to diligently and intentionally instruct their children in the faith. I would see this at times in youth ministry. As parents, you cannot delegate and outsource this responsibility. Don't depend on pastors. Don't depend on Sunday school teachers. Don't depend on youth directors and camps and youth Bible studies. It is your primary responsibility to instruct your children in the faith. Those other things are wonderful. Sunday school is wonderful. I hope that my instruction to you is helpful. Youth camps, youth directors, youth Bible studies, all those things can can be great and they can assist kids who don't come from believing households. But their ministry and discipleship should never free you from the obligation you have to teach your children what God has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. If the Lord and his work appears to your kids to be unimportant to you, 
it's probably going to be unimportant to them and to your grandchildren. That's what happens in the time of the judges. Another generation arose that did not know the Lord, and things get ugly. Over and over again, the refrain is repeated, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Doesn't that sound familiar to you? I think it's a perfect description of the current state of our culture. Everyone is living their truth and speaking their truth. We can thank Oprah for that. (laughs) Everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, not in the eyes of the Creator. That's what was going on in the time of the Judges. And the book of Judges is a series of cycles where God's people will fall into idolatry and unbelief. God will send an enemy to discipline them. They will cry out for help and relief. God will raise up a judge to deliver them. And then the cycle repeats. But as the cycle repeats, things get progressively worse and worse. Until you get to the end of the book where there is this scene where the people, the the tribe of Benjamin look identical to the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, just read. It's easy to remember. Read Judges 19 and Genesis 19. Judges 19 and Genesis 19. Compare those two. And the parallels are sickening. And what follows are the the tribes of Israel going to war with each other, thousands of men dying at the hands of their kin, and hundreds of young girls being kidnapped and married off against their will. That's the context into which Samuel is born. In fact, Samuel will be the last of the judges. What began with Othniel will end with Samuel. But the birth of Samuel also marks the beginning of another office. He is the final judge, but also the first of the prophets. You think of names like Elijah and Elisha, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Micah, Ezekiel, all the rest, all the way to John the Baptist. Samuel is the very first of them. And here we see the significance of Samuel. His arrival on the scene marks a new chapter in Israel's history. He will be used in a period of massive transition where the nation moves from the time of the judges to the time of the monarchy. The very first king, Saul, will come to the throne under Samuel's ministry. And it's Samuel himself who will anoint a young man named David, to be the next and greatest king in Israel's history. That is, until great David's greater son is finally born in Bethlehem. But when you think about Samuel's role, think of it as being similar to that of John the Baptist. Remember what God sent John to do, to prepare the people for the coming of the anointed one, the Messiah. Something very similar will happen here in the ministry of Samuel. God sends a prophet to speak and to prepare his people for the coming king 
and the coming kingdom. In this transition, this story begins with a family and a whole lot of family drama. We'll see that in just a moment, but first let's pray. Father God, we confess, along with the Apostle, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be equipped for every good work. Father, we remember that your word is established in the heavens and it is immovable. Father, would you speak to us through it? Would you bless your humble servant as he opens it before your people? I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think in my bulletin I've got 1 Samuel 1, 1 through 20. We're going to do 1 through 18. That's a... That's how the cards wound up falling yesterday. Um, For Samuel 1, we'll read verses 1 through 18. There was a certain man, Ramathiam Zophim, in the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. The name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant but will give to your servant a son. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, 
and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord. I am a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along, I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. A brief thought about that before we continue in 1 Samuel. Those words that we just said together, those words that we say every week after we read our passage, I find them especially poignant this morning because we are continuing on. We're beginning a new study. We're opening a new portion of Scripture together. While one that we all dearly loved is not with us. It's a humbling thing. And it will be the same for all of us. One day, your days will end. You will wither and fade. And the following Lord's Day, a pastor will stand before a congregation and open the scriptures before them. And this will continue on and on until the Lord comes. We hold these two truths together this morning, that the grass does wither and the flower does fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Two things I want you to see in today's text. Hannah's plight and Hannah's prayer. There's your alliteration. We'll see Hannah's plight in verses 1 through 8, and we'll see Hannah's prayer in verses 9 through 18. As the book of Samuel begins, we're introduced to a family. And like other families seen in Scripture, there is nothing overtly special about them. This family lived in a small community approximately five miles north of what would become Jerusalem. The husband was named Elkanah. And the fact that his lineage is given is some indication that this is a man of some social standing, not royalty by any means, but probably respected within his community. Then we're also told that he had two wives. Now, anyone who's read through the Old Testament knows that there are instances of polygamy. I would tell you that just because something is in the Old Testament does not mean that it is commended or that it's God's will for marriage. There are 
lots of things in the Old Testament that you and I should never do. It's clear both in Genesis 2 and repeated by Jesus in Matthew 19 that marriage is between one man and one woman. And so we ask the question, why would Elkanah do this? Why would he take a second wife? It seems pretty obvious. His first wife couldn't get pregnant. And so he took another wife in hopes that she could. And she did. Now we've seen Abraham do something similar. God promised Abraham he would have a son Sarah, Abraham's wife, was barren and well advanced in years. And so what did Abraham do? He impregnated Sarah's servant, Hagar. It's probably a similar motivation here. And it soon soon becomes clear that this is not a happy household. Surprise, surprise. What would you expect when there are two women sharing one man? Especially when you add in that one of those women has all of her husband's affection and the other woman has all the children. I mean, that's a recipe for domestic passive aggressive warfare, which we'll see in just a moment. Verse 2 introduces us to these two women. The first is named Hannah. She is the one who could not get pregnant. In just a moment, we'll see why. But Hannah also possessed the affection of her husband. We see in verse 5 that Elkanah loved her. That same language of love isn't used for the other wife, a woman named Peninnah. But what Peninnah did have was lots and lots of children. We're told in verse 4 that Peninnah had sons and daughters. So that's a minimum of at least two boys and two girls. But if you ask me, I would guess there were lots more than that. And knowing this, you can understand the tension of this household. The first wife is deeply loved by her husband. He chose her first. His affections remain on her despite her barrenness. But he also deeply longed to have children. So he brought another woman into their home. And we'll see the conflict in just a moment. But first, we need to ask a question, an important question that the text answers. Why? Why is Hannah unable to have children? We see at the end of verse 5, because the Lord had closed her womb. This is something that he had done. In his providence, he'd not allowed Hannah, the apple of her husband's eye, to conceive. And he did it. Not because Hannah had sinned and was being punished. I believe he did it because he was providing a picture in her barrenness. He's providing a picture of the spiritual state of the people of God Here at the end of the Judges. Israel was barren. She hadn't been fruitful. 
She hadn't produced children who knew the Lord and his work. Instead, she'd produced idolatry and unbelief. And Hannah is the living, breathing illustration of the current state of God's people. And yet we know, don't we, that our God loves to make something out of nothing. He loves to bring light out of darkness and life out of death and to show up and do something incredible when the circumstances seem entirely hopeless. Anytime you see a birth narrative in Scripture, which we'll get to next week, pay attention. And anytime you see a barren woman in Scripture, pay attention. Because it is a sign that God is working and he is about to do something important. One of the commentators I'm going to be using during the study is a man by the name of Dale Ralph Davis. He was a professor at RTS for a long time. He is one of the preeminent scholars on First and Second Samuel, but he makes everything so simple and approachable. You're going to hear his name a lot. So just get familiar with the name Ralph Davis. Uh, but in his commentary, uh, Davis says, quote, Hannah shares in a fellowship of, broken, uh, of, of barrenness. And it is frequently in this fellowship that new chapters in the Lord's history with his people begin. Begin with nothing. God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. Our helplessness and our hopelessness are no barrier to his work. Indeed, our utter incapacity is often the prop he delights to use for his next act. End quote. I hope that that encourages you. I hope you remember that when you find yourself in a hopeless, helpless situation, stop and remember that such times are precisely, this isn't just about having children and barrenness. There are many hopeless, helpless situations. And in those times, remember that God loves to work. And so look to him and ask, Lord, what are you up to? How will you use this grief? How will you use this affliction to do something that only you could do? Ralph Davis continues, quote, When God's people are without strength and without resources, without hope, and without human gimmicks, then he loves to stretch forth his hand from heaven. End quote. That's our God's mode of operation. That when we are without strength, when we have no tricks, no gimmicks, that's when he loves to stretch forth his hand. We're going to get to that incredible word next week. I thought we might at the end of this sermon, but we're not next week. And so let's look at Hannah's plight of barrenness coming to a head. Elkanah had taken his family to the tabernacle to worship and offer sacrifices. 
And this was something important to him. It seems clear. It's something he would do every year. He would take his family to the tabernacle and offer sacrifices. And at this time, the tabernacle was at a place whose name is quite familiar to us. It was at a place called Shiloh. So here's the picture. The family is worshiping God at Shiloh. Elkanah sacrificed a peace offering. Now, a third of that peace offering, or a, I don't want to say a third, a portion of that peace offering would be burned, a portion would be given to the priest, and a portion would be eaten by the worshipers. And so here they are, they're gathered around the table. Elkanah is fixing everyone's plates, and he serves Peninnah, and he serves her children, and then he comes to Hannah, and he gives her a double portion. He gives her twice as much as was given to Peninnah, because he loved Hannah. And Peninnah couldn't help but notice this. How do you think she reacted? How would you react? Her eyes probably widened. She forced a smile behind gritted teeth, acted like everything was okay in front of her husband, and then turned in furious, passive-aggressive rage upon Hannah. And Ralph Davis, again, provides a, a sample of what the table conversation may have been like at Shiloh. Panina says, Now, do all you children have your food? Dear me, there are so many of you. It's hard to keep track. And then one of the children starts interacting, and you know how children are. You know how they say things in front of people that they just just speak their mind. One of the children says, Mommy, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. What did you say, dear? I said Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. Oh, Miss Hannah. Oh, yes, that's, that's right. She doesn't have any children. Well, doesn't she want children? Oh, yes. She wants children very, very much. Wouldn't you say so, Hannah? Don't you wish that you had children too? Of course, Hannah says nothing. And then here comes the kid again. Doesn't Daddy want Miss Hannah to have kids? Oh, certainly he does. But Miss Hannah keeps disappointing him. She just can't have kids. Why not? Why Because God won't let her. Does God not like Miss Hannah? Well, I don't know. What do you think? Oh, by the way, Hannah, did I mention to you that I'm pregnant again? That was Hannah's life. That's what she lived with constantly. Not only the societal pressure of a married woman to have children, not only month after month of infertility and disappointment, but on top of that, she had the ire of a very fertile thorn in the flesh 
named Panina. That was Hannah's plight. Barren, grieved, constantly provoked and irritated. And in this moment at the tabernacle meal, she felt sick. She couldn't eat. She just hung her head and sobbed. Her husband tried to comfort her and fell short. Maybe some of you husbands can relate. Maybe some of you wives can relate. But what does Hannah do? What would we expect Hannah to do? Maybe become angry with God and turn away from him. Be bitter and resentful. That's not what she did. Maybe we'd expect Hannah to just accept her plight and say, this is who I am. This is my lot in life. I'm just going to have to learn how to live with this. I may not have children, but at least my husband loves me. At least he loves me more than that awful woman. But again, that's not what she does. What does Hannah do? She prays. After the meal, Hannah got up, left the table, went alone to the entrance of the tabernacle to pray in her distress. It'd be like one of you coming up here midweek, sitting alone in this room, in a pew, in the silence, crying out to the Lord. That's what Hannah did. This is a remarkable woman who provides a model for us to follow. She did the best thing she could possibly have done. I mean, you remember what James wrote. He asks the question, is there anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. That's what Hannah does. And let's look at her prayer with the time we have left. First, notice who it is that she prays to. Or rather, notice the name for God she uses. She prays to the Lord of hosts. That is one of the highest and most magnificent names of God used in Scripture. The name Lord, which you'll see in your Bible in all caps, is the covenant name for God. It's the first name given to Moses at the burning bush, the the Hebrew name Yahweh. And then she pairs it with of hosts, or in the Hebrew, Sabaoth, which means the commander of the armies of heaven. You know, I want you to think of our president's title of commander-in-chief. That is our president's office as the supreme commander of the armed forces of the United States of America. But Hannah prays to one who inhabits a greater office. She prays to one who is supreme not only over human warriors and kings, but who sovereignly commands the legions of heaven. One of my favorite images in Scripture is found in First, I'm sorry, Second Kings, chapter six. Israel's 
enemy, the king of Syria, wants to get rid of God's prophet Elisha. And so he finds out where Elisha is and he sends a great army under the cover of darkness to surround the city. And early in the morning as dawn breaks, Elisha's servant looks out beyond the walls and is horrified to see the vast army that has completely surrounded them. They've cut off any means of escape. And so he runs back to Elisha to deliver the bad news. And do you remember what happens? Elisha said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. Remember what he saw? Listen, I, I want a painting of this. If you paint this for me, I will hang it up in my office proudly. The Lord opened the eyes of this young man. And he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That's who Hannah is praying to. Lord Sabaoth, the one true and living God, the faithful covenant God of Israel, the God who has every power in the seen and unseen realm and every resource in the universe at his total disposal. I mean, did you catch it? We sang of him this morning. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name. From age to age the same. And he must win the battle. That's who Hannah cries out to in her time of need. And isn't it amazing that this seemingly unimportant woman from the hill country of Ephraim truly believes that her tears and griefs matter and are heard by the commander-in-chief of the armies of heaven. And isn't it even more amazing that her belief was and remains true? To quote Dr. Chuck Frost, Hannah believed that God can and God cares. That's who she prays to. But hear what she says. She says, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant. Now, where have we heard that language before? That is Exodus language. She is speaking words about the character of God and his past actions, which he knows, which, which she knows to be true. I, I think it may have been last week as I was wrapping up Micah, I pointed out that for Old Testament Israel, the cross was that event that they looked back to. I'm sorry, the Exodus was that event that they looked back to, like the cross is the event that we New Testament believers look back to. She remembered God's saving act in the Exodus in the same way that we remember God's saving act on the cross. And she uses that language. 
She remembers the Lord's words to Moses when he said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people and have heard their cry and know their sufferings. Hannah uses that same language. Hannah is praying scripture. She's saying, Lord, do for me what you have done previously for your people. Be the same today as you were then. She's not going to use flowery, fancy language. She's not going to invoke some magical formula or incantation. She's simply recalling his faithfulness and his salvation of his people and saying, this is what I need you to do. And what does she ask for? Give to your servant a son. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. She's asking for one son. That's all. Not a parcel of children like Peninnah had. One son. And she vowed, Lord, if you will give him to me, then I will give him back to you. This mention of the the razor, you might think I'm taking this literally. This not cutting of the hair refers to the Nazarite vow. This was a vow someone would take when they entered the service of the Lord. Such a person was marked by different external actions, one of those being not cutting of the hair. Most folks who took this vow would only do so for a time, for a number of days, and then they would cut their hair and resume normal life. But Hannah says, Lord, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you so that he may serve you all the days of his life. Now, is Hannah bargaining with God? It's another question to ask. Is she bargaining with God? Is this a quid pro quo? You do this for me, I will do that for you. That is not what's happening. That's what the pagans do. The pagans try to appease their gods. They try to offer their gods gifts and bribes in order to manipulate them into doing what the pagans want them to do, but not Hannah. What did Hannah want most? She wanted the same thing that all believing parents should want for their children. For them to belong to the Lord and be used for his glory and the building of his kingdom. Christian parents often pray, Lord, draw my child to yourself. Draw my child early in life so that he or she might never remember a time when they did not know and serve you. That's what Hannah is praying. Lord, give me a son that I can give him back to you. And there's one final thing to look at before we're done. The whole time Hannah is praying, she's being watched by Eli the priest. This is the high priest who is over the tabernacle. He's seated by the entrance of the tent. He sees her lips moving, but he's not hearing her say anything. The only thing he's probably hearing are the sobs of a distressed woman. And what does this genius assume? 
that she's intoxicated. And he begins to scold her. How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. You know, we talked about the spiritual state of Israel at this time. Here is the high priest. And his discernment is so lacking that he takes the heartfelt prayer of Hannah as being the drunken fit of a hysterical woman trying to drown her sorrows with wine. And by the way, we have a little foreshadowing here of of what's coming. It's, It's remarkable that the wine here set him off, but he has a lot of toleration for some worthless children of his. But after confronting Hannah, Hannah humbly responds by saying, My Lord, I am troubled in spirit. I'm not drunk. I'm only pouring out my soul before the Lord. The light bulb comes on for Eli. He responds. He blesses her. He speaks words of benediction over her, saying, Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And that was enough for Hannah. She got up, went back to the table, ate her meal, and was no longer sad. What changed in Hannah? Why did she rise and was no longer sad? Because she believed the words of the high priest to be the Lord's answer to her prayer. He was the mediator who spoke on God's behalf to God's people, and she trusted his words. And as we'll see next week, as we already know because of the name of the book, Eli's words, as imperfect as he was, his words were true. God heard her prayer and would answer it shortly. Here's what I want to end with. You and I have a greater high priest who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we pray to our Father in heaven, we always pray through Him. In His name. Not because of some magical formula, not because of some religious ritual, but because we believe that it is only through Him that we are able to boldly draw near to the throne of grace. He is our appointed mediator. He represents us to the Father and the Father to us. That's why we pray in His name. And so... When we hear words of blessing that he speaks to his people, when we hear words of comfort and pardon and assurance that he speaks to his people, we, like Hannah, must believe. Believe them and trust them and respond to them 
and go away glad. Now there are a boatload of these that we could pick from. But this morning in particular, after the loss of our dear brother and friend, hear these words of blessing that your great high priest has spoken over you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Let's pray. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Thanks be to God. In Jesus' name. Amen.